a remote fantastical kingdom far from Europe's chancelleries of power. An ancient castle where secrets are walled up. An unpopular monarch on the eve of his coronation. A ruling class of plotters and would-be usurpers. And a gentleman adventurer on holiday. No, not Ruritania in the 19th century, but the United Kingdom in the 21st. Stein's new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is a contemporary inversion of Anthony Hope's classic, The Prisoner of Zender. In the original, an English gentleman on vacation is called upon to stand in for his lookalike, the King of Ruritania, at his coronation. Over a century later, a Ruritanian on vacation in London is called upon to return the favour and stand in for an Englishman in an absurd, fantastical kingdom where Brexit never quite happened. Plots are afoot. The Prisoner of Windsor by Mark Stein. Available in hardback and digital editions or for a personally autographed copy, go to steinonline.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along, May 12th, 2023. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That is 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, half past four in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas. 8 p.m. in London and Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev. Yes! 10 p.m. in Kiev and Moscow. <laughs> Now in the same time zone, if not the same country, 10.30pm in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone, midnight 45 in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 3am in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. Sorry about that. 5am in Sydney and Melbourne. Still still pretty sorry about that. 7am in Auckland and a somewhat more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific. Today is the birthday of Florence Nightingale, born to an English family in Florence. That's why they named her. Uh, they could have called her Firenze, and she would have been known to posterity as Firenze Nightingale, but they chose to go with the anglicization. Florence Nightingale, born in 1820, May the 12th, and thus May the 12th is now observed as International Nurses Day. I am the beneficiary of the ministrations of international nurses. I would not be here were it not for international nurses. And I thank especially Audrey, the infirmière d'urgence, who saved my life, and Vanessa, 
who was the lead nurse and who took care of me for a week in the Provençal ICU. I love the way she said my name. I won't attempt to mimic it because it was so distinctive and so appealing. Uh, I don't feel great, to be honest, but I figure I have enough puff in me for one last battle. And the totalitarian goons of Ofcom have chosen to pick a fight with me and with Naomi Wolf, who I'm pleased to say is in splendid health, and Naomi and I are going to fight back. Their two judgments against me are, aside from anything else, illegal. (laughs) They're also without evidence, an abuse of due process, and in breach of both Magna Carta and the European Convention of Human Rights. I'm just warming up here. I'm just warming up, but I wouldn't be able to do that uh, even were it not for those French infirmières. So a happy International Nurses Day and also a happy belated birthday to the Mark Stein Club. We are six years old. Uh, We're actually six years old on Coronation Day. And uh, for some reason, the coronation of His Majesty the King took priority uh, rather than the Mark Stein Club's sixth birthday. But I thank those of you who've been with us since day one. And I also thank those of you who've joined in the last 24 hours. We treasure all our members. Uh, Just as an update on that Ofcom business, uh, today uh, we sent... Ofcom, uh, my uh, Casey sent Ofcom uh, a letter uh, informing them that we would be off to the English High Court. <laughs> but in case they're not minded to go to the High Court, uh, giving them a week to uh, reverse their decision and, uh, and acquit me. Uh, belatedly. Uh, So that's the situation where we stand. We're serious about it uh, and we're going to go all the way, if necessary, to the European Court of Human Rights because I regard this as as about as primal a free speech question as you can get. And, you know, I quoted some story by some wanker in uh, the iPaper. I don't even know what that is really because it wasn't around... When I uh, was living in London, uh, but the way they accept the idea of a state commissar, one of these Ofcom bozos was speaking at some conference and uh, said that uh, you know uh, they'd allow GB News to continue as long as they quote be- behave themselves. In it's not normal, or it shouldn't be normal, in a free society for state bureaucracies to demand that the fourth estate, the free press, behave itself. It's disturbing and creepy. And it's even creepier the way little tosspots at some of these unread newspapers uh, reprint these quotes as if they are normal. Anyway, what's going on today? Uh, chaos at the southern border, if you're an American, uh, because it's the first day post-Title 42. And oddly enough, uh, the seven and a half billion people on the planet who aren't American all seem to know that and all seem to be making their way across the Rio Grande. The, the dissolution of the southern border is not just the dissolution of the national frontier. It's also ultimately the dissolution of American citizenship. Um, 
Because, uh, as you know, on these numbers, there, there will be no America on these numbers. Basically, the rate at which people have been ad- admit this was under the modest control afforded by Title 42, which is a Trump era law. Uh, but Biden announced he was going to get rid of that. Uh, Biden opened the borders to the extent he could uh, until a court put the kibosh on abolishing Title 42 temporarily. But the number of people who've officially been admitted is two and a half million, supposedly, since Biden took office. I would say that's, you know, off by at least 50 percent, simply because there's no tracking of who's coming in for the most part. So when Trump did his thing about why don't we get people from Norway come in here? Well, you know, no Norwegian wants to has any particularly good reason to go to a country that's going off the cliff uh, in the way that America is. But it's also the point that if the entire population of Norway moved here, it would not quite equal the number of people Joe Biden's admitted in the two whatever. What are we up to now? Twenty twenty three. The two years he's been president. So, so you can get all the Norwegians you want, and they don't counter everything that's going on on the southern border. Uh, let us get to your questions. Keith Fowler writes, I was delighted to see Naomi Wolf join you in challenging that damn turbulent Ofcom. And I wish you every success in your endeavours to halt the creep of the state. Given the way UK and US governments have acted over the last three years, would I be right in thinking they are not interested in passing new legislation, save that which accrues yet more power to the state and further oppresses those people that future historians will laughingly refer to as the electorate? Um, I think you're right, Keith. I think it would be asking these guys an awful lot to forego the power they have wielded over us the last three years. And I think if you take them at face value, they don't want to. The obvious uh, aspect of, of climate change hysteria, which, is, which ought, to, in fact, to limit its appeal to ordinary people, is that essentially the remedy that they are all calling for is an end to the modern Western lifestyle as quite ordinary citizens have grown used to experiencing it uh, in the years since the end of the Second World War. So they're, they're saying, look, this, this was a blip. Uh, the years since 1950 were a blip. You've had your fun. Now it's time to go back to being an inconsequential peasant who spends his life in the crappy neighborhood he lived in because he doesn't have private transportation that will enable him to zip around. Uh, the electric vehicle nonsense. Uh, we're, going, we're going to talk some more about this um, on the Mark Stein Show this coming week. But the electric vehicle nonsense. Uh, isn't about uh, swapping out a form of private transportation. It's about ending private transportation. They're quite explicit about that. Uh, There was a UK government document, we mentioned it on the show, uh, whereby they want to close down, and this is an interim stage prior to closing down all 
public passenger airports. But by 2030, which is seven years away, this official government document proposes closing down all the airports uh, except for Heathrow, Belfast and Glasgow. Um, So England, Scotland and Northern Ireland get an airport apiece and Wales is screwed. You're going to have to drive to an English or Scottish airport or take the boat to the airport in Belfast. That's how unimportant you are. So, yes, I think I think we should take what they say at face value, that they're interested in you living smaller, shrunken lives. That's the point. And they don't want us talking about that. And that's the point of agencies such as Ofcom. And that's why governments want to give agencies such as Ofcom the unregulated bit. You know, it's all been fun letting uh, Facebook and Twitter and so on shut down any dissent over the last three years. But then some guy bought Twitter And uh, he opened it up a bit again. So we can't really rely on Twitter and Facebook and so forth to police their own. So the Internet will have to be brought under Ofcom type control. Eric Dale writes, Mark, shouldn't we be more grateful that we have such benevolent overlords like Ofcom in the UK and who knows whomsoever in the United States? After all, these people are the best and brightest, and they never make mistakes or engage in self-dealing. I think Eric is being a little sarcastic there. But what is interesting, you can't actually use that kind of sarcasm, Eric, because half your uh, family, friends, and neighbors think you're being entirely serious. We have had rule by experts for the last three years, and it screwed everything. It screwed the economy. Uh, As Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was saying on uh, the Mark Stein show a couple of days ago, there's three and a half million businesses that are never coming back. They're gone. They're gone for good because of actions the experts took. Uh, As Naomi Wolf was saying on the show that uh, Ofcom deems unbroadcastable in the United Kingdom as Nami was saying on that show, there are issues within uh, about women's fertility, an extraordinary percentage of women. These are, by the way, these are side effects that would get any other product withdrawn from the market. Uh, and the impact on things like women's fertility uh, can be seen across the Western world, not just in the United States, where they've actually had surveys on uh, how many millions of women uh, report Uh, changes to their menstrual cycles to the now collapsed birth rates uh, that you see across the European continent. Again, this is ruled by experts. And yet, as I say, if Eric Dale steps out of his house and he just uh, chit-chats with random people round and about, he will find that half the people in the land are willing to mortgage their liberties Uh, in exchange for rule by experts. We had them all softening us up on this and the climate change. Oh, uh, uh, are you a climatologist? Uh, No, actually, I'm uh, just a Nobel Prize winner in physics. Well, if you're not a climatologist, though, then you don't have any right to speak on this issue. And we've had all that. And the result, uh, and that softened everybody up for the COVID thing, which where, where we assume that these people flanking the political leaders... Uh, actually knew what they were talking about. No, they didn't. They 
got it. We again, we keep quoting these things. Professor Pantsdown, the genius at Imperial College, who had a, he's a big buddies with Fauci and the other Americans, and he had actually a big sway on the Americans. As recently as a year and a half ago, just before Christmas 2021, he was predicting that Omicron would kill 5,000 people a day in the UK. <laughs> you know? And yet he still, ta- he, Ofcom still takes him seriously. He can say that. That's why Of Ofcom, there was a great Kathy Shadle line, you know, you're not smart enough to tell me what to think. Professor Pantsdown isn't smart enough to tell you what to think. Fauci isn't smart enough to tell you what to think. Never mind Boris Johnson or Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden or Emmanuel Macron being smart enough to tell you what to think. And as long as half the population is willing to, is is so bloody stupid that it thinks these people are smart enough to tell them what to think, we are screwed. Jeff says, Dear Mark, onward into the breach against the commissars of Ofcom. I'm curious, though, what the end goal is. Is it just a reversal of their ridiculous decisions against you or something greater, such as bringing down the entire Ministry of Truth? Well, you know, I always, I've said on TV that the goal is to get Ofcom out of the editorial business entirely. And I was very clear about this. I'm sure I've, I've talked about this before. But um, when we had our first uh, conference call on the McLean's case, so whatever that was, 10, 15 years ago, I can't, I've lost all track of time. Whenever that was. So it's the kind of call I hate having to do, but I was prevailed upon to do it. So my Editor, Ken White, um, who I worked with at the National Post, go back a long way with him and think Ken is a brilliant, uh, absolutely brilliant editor. And Julian Porter, uh, QC then, now KC. Uh, Julian, I, I go back just as far with and think he's absolutely a brilliant uh, lawyer. And so they, they were having this conference call. Everyone else on the call are all like, you know, senior executive vice presidents of various parts of the Rogers Empire, which is the Rogers Empire is as big as it gets in Canada. Ted Rogers was a genius and he built it up. And, uh, you know, uh, in the way that it's, it used to be, Mark Stein at AOL.com. In Canada, it would be Mark Stein at Rogers.com because Rogers were the standard operators of email and all the rest of it. So as mainstream as you can get, not ideological. And at one point, one of these senior executive vice presidents said, well, what's the end game here? And there was a kind of silence. And I said, well, the end game is to get the law repealed. And there was another silence. And at that point, some other senior executive vice president said, OK, works for me. And that and that became the thing. Now, obviously, it's different at GB News because they're they're a bunch of Nancy's. Um, as I said, our position is that what Ofcom did is actually illegal. Nevertheless, the Nancy boys at GB News chose to surrender to it. So I'd like to. Now, we've given them 
As I mentioned earlier, we've sent them a letter saying, you know, uh, if they don't want to go to court, all they have to do is reverse their decision. But they're not going to do that. Uh, And so in the end, we are going to litigate it. And as I said, my position is the actions they took were illegal and they shouldn't have taken them. Now, what happened uh, at the Human Rights Commission Canadian Human Rights Commission, they crumbled rather quickly after, as I said, my dear friend Julian Porter, after Julian, they were holding secret trials. Julian filed a motion, really short motion compared to the bollocks that's filed on my behalf in the Michael Mann case and everything, where all the motions seem to be 500 pages long. Uh, He just filed a two-page motion uh, saying that they shouldn't be holding secret trials, and the the <laughs> he was vain. He put judge quote <laughs> in inverted commas, and the judge was so sort of rattled by getting it shoved up his butt, which hadn't ever happened to him before, that he he immediately opened up the trial. He ended the secret trials. They've never held secret trials since, and they became public trials. And in fact. <laughs> A couple of months later, he ruled against himself and decided that the rule under which the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal had been convicting all these people was, in fact, unconstitutional, and he wasn't going to hold any more trials under it anymore. It's going to be more difficult in London. But, you know, those are the stakes. Those are the stakes. It might well be that they just throw in the towel and reverse their decision. They've got seven days to do it. That's till close of business next Friday. Uh, But if they don't do that, then, you know, we're going to be going to court with uh, a lot of bigger fish to fry. Uh, Matt from upstate New York says, Hi, Mark. Again, I find myself frustrated by the distrust shown by those on the right towards potential allies on the left. Naomi Wolf, and uh, who it will be... uh, standing alongside me in court in London, uh, Naomi Wolf and RFK Jr. specifically. Partisan blinders are comforting, but they have to come off. I don't see anyone on the right standing next to you in the dock versus Ofcom. How can that partisan distrust be overcome? Well, you know, the thing about it is I'm it was different in Canada, but Canada, you know, in the nature of things, is a smaller uh, power, if you regard it as a power as such. It's a member of the G7. And actually, at the time the UN was set up, it was more deserving of the fifth uh, Security Council seat than uh, China ever was. But they they didn't want to Uh, give a third Anglo nation and a second realm of uh, George VI a seat on the thing, uh, on the Security Council. But, but but you know, it's it's a peripheral player. Let's put it, just just leave it like that. And the thing about, I don't really care about, you know, what most people want to do is to be able to make their living without anything threatening it. And I understand that, you know, I so I in Canada where everybody knows everybody. So eventually at a certain point, everybody was on my side against the Human Rights Commission, including all the lefties like Margaret Atwood and uh, the CBC uh, guy. Uh, um, what's he called? Um, uh, Neil, uh, Neil MacDonald and all these people were on my side. Uh, 
so it's sort of relatively easy. In the Michael Mann case, Michael Mann is, has been short of friends, hasn't been that much better for me, just because people, you know, people have their own fish to fry. And I don't really, I don't really care about that. I'm happy to assume the weight on my own. As I said, I've sort of uh, taken my pulse and figure I've got just about enough in me to see this thing through. And certainly Naomi does. And uh, and so we're gonna uh, go and uh, uh, we're gonna go and give it a go. So uh, that's that's how that's how that is. I don't think. I'm interested. What I want is, you know, what was the thing, the, the phrase that was all the rage for a while? The Overton window. You know, what's interesting, Naomi, I think, is uh, she can speak for herself, but I, she's she's indicated she's undergone a kind of conversion because you simply can't what she wants to talk about. You can't talk about on the left. The left is moronic on this. It's still worshipping Fauci. Uh, Fauci is a corrupt public official uh, who's who lied to the American people. But the left doesn't care about that as long as they figure you're lying in their interest. And they regard Fauci as having been extremely helpful in destroying the Trump presidency. So they're not interested in hearing from Naomi. So she's expelled from the left. Whether she actually uh, then eventually joins the right is for her to decide. But she's talking about something that nobody else, uh, very few other people, are talking about in the US media. And that is, you know, huge uh, amounts of uh, catastrophic injuries and death from these viruses. And I think we should be allowed to talk about that. Then you look at RFK Jr. RFK Jr., is again, he's running as a Democrat because that's his party. It was the party of his uncles and it was the party of his father. And it would be a lot to be expected uh, for him to be expected to give that up. But his party doesn't want to hear about any of the things he likes talking about, including what he said, which I thought was very interesting for a Democrat. You used to be able, 50 years ago, you could find Democrats willing to talk like that, but talk about things like that, but not now, uh, where he was talking about specifically the Second Amendment and uh, saying it's nothing to do with guns and, and was talking about Switzerland, which is... Uh, fantastic uh, rates of gun ownership and doesn't have mass shootings. And he thinks it's the over-medication of the American people. I mean, the uh, at the adult level, the American people are the most medicated people on earth and doesn't seem to do anything for it, doesn't seem to do anything. It has, yeah, at the same time, uh, Americans have the lowest life expectancy in the Western world. Um, you know, if you want to quibble with that, I think American life expectancy is a tad a whisker better than Estonia uh, if you consider Estonia part of the Western world it's been part of the Western world for the last 30 years uh, and we have Mark Stein Club members in Estonia but uh, I like Estonia but you wouldn't have thought that was a uh, a few years ago you wouldn't have considered that a key player in the Western world. So it's America basically has the lowest life expectancy in the Western world. And the gap is getting wider, which is odd 
given, as I said, that Americans are the most medicated people on earth. Now, then you have the childhood aspects of the medication, which astonished me when I came here and I had my kids and my kids went to the little village school, the little, you know, grade school uh, where, you know, like as in my sister, my daughter's class, uh, everybody but her were cousins of each other. So that Randy was a cousin of Molly and Molly was a cousin of Pee Wee and, you know, all that. that. And, and yet at the same time, uh, medicating the kids was thought of as perfectly natural to the point where at one point they were threatening to medicate one of mine and I wound up... Uh, flying back from Australia a couple of days earlier than I intended to, just in case I had to shove the kid in the car and drive him across the border to Canada. Again, RFK Jr. is right to want to talk about this. And you know something? The sterility of the American political system, uh, by which I mean frozen, two frozen parties. Uh, It's not like the parties come and go. Uh, over that 150 years, as they have done in Australia, as they have done in France, as they have done in uh, in in almost every other society on earth, uh, you know, at this stage things are not going. And I'm I'm separating this from the Trump thing because Trump, as I think I said, had a very good night in New Hampshire. Just basically, uh, it it was Trump at his best. I've been saying that for you know, whatever it is now, the last year, that Trump needs a second act. Well, I thought actually what he did to that talentless hack CNN host uh, the other night was a pretty good start to a second act. And I think uh, I think it's emphasized the underlying reality on, of the Republican side of the contest Uh, that you're not going to get anybody, after that performance, you're not going to get any big shot to jump in. So we just got um, Asa Hutchinson, uh, who's, you know, just some nothing person who, uh, in his one uh, experience of senior executive office as a governor in Arkansas, uh, has done terrible things. He's just a weakling horrible little weakling, too weak to stand up to the bodily mutilation of middle school girls. If you can't stand up to that, I got, I'm got. not persuaded you're going to be the guy uh, to stand up to China. You know, so I think he's a joke. I think Nikki, Nikki Haley is just one of those classic finger in the... I have no idea what Nikki Haley really believes. I doubt she has any idea what she really believes. Everything she says sounds just totally insincere to me. So uh, so, so here, here's my point on that, that if we take it after New Hampshire, you can never, you know, be absolutely certain. You have no idea what, you know how these court cases will go. Uh, they're serious. They'd like, they'd like to make him the nominee and yet at the same time ensnare him in so many legal difficulties that he's a discredited nominee. And that might all go slightly... Aligning the timing on those two things might prove difficult. So they actually get ahead of themselves and it turns out that on New Hampshire primary day he's sitting in a jail cell somewhere. 
Uh, and so then all bets are off as to who would be the nominee. But if we, if you take it that after New Hampshire, he's just sailing to the nomination, Trump. And so you have had a situation where there's Trump and then someone else on the Democrat side. Imagine if it worked out that somehow uh, RFK, someone like RFK Jr. got the headwinds behind him and took the, forced Biden out of the race and then took the nomination. You would have two, uh, two candidates, neither of whom, as has been pointed out in our comments section uh, in recent days, who were creatures of the, who, neither of whom were creatures of the deep state. Who knows how that would go? But it would certainly open up uh, the election to have a conversation on real issues, real challenges. The, uh, the, the uh, number of Americans dead from fentanyl brought across the dissolved southern border and all the rest of it. It would be interesting. It would be an interesting race. It would be, you know, that's why I, my, I came in on this subject. 2015, when I was I wrote a column. People remember the Trumpy bits of the column, but they don't remember the other bits of the column, which were about Bernie Sanders. At that point, the geniuses who run America wanted us to have Hillary versus Jeb, uh, the wife of the previous president versus the son and brother of the previous presidents. So. Uh, that's what it had dwindled down to in a republic of 300 million people. And I said I'd far, far rather prefer Trump versus Sanders, who in some ways were talking at that point about the same thing. The problem was that Trump meant it and Bernie turned out to be a big bloody wimp. Uh, and every time he was required to show the killer instinct... And Trump generally rose to those challenges, like uh, his you'd be in jail line or the um, the line against Jeb Bush when he said, yes, I'm not ashamed to be George W. Bush's brother. I'm not ashamed to be Barbara Bush's son. And Trump just leaned into the mic and goes, uh, she's the one who should be running. <laughs> and uh, whenever he was called upon to have the killer instinct like that, uh, Bernie wimped out. But that's the thing. You know, Trump versus Bernie would have been a real uh, election in the same way that Trump versus RFK Jr. Uh, would have been a real election. Uh, let's pause for a brief musical respite from the hell of the headlines uh, on Tuesday. I think it was Tuesday. On Tuesday's Mark Stein show, I paid tribute to Linda Lewis singer and songwriter and guitarist and a, just a super nice person. Linda died at just 72 earlier this month. I first met her at London's Capital Radio when I was a 14-year-old schoolboy and I thought she was super hot uh, because I was a 14-year-old schoolboy and a mess of raging hormones. But my hormones calmed down and um, to the end, I still thought she was super hot, uh, mainly because of her fabulous five-octave voice. Uh, don't take my word for it. All kinds of people love that voice. David Bowie, Rod Stewart, Cat Stevens. Um, 
on the telly show on Tuesday. I played a bit of her big hit, It's In His Kiss, which is way better than Cher's version 15 years later. And then I played Linda singing Gilbert and Sullivan, which gives you an idea of her range. This song was written by John Martin, the British folk singer. Uh, it was never a hit, but for quite a few years, a lot of big singers sang it. Ralph McTell, Eric Clapton, the Bellamy Brothers, wet, wet, wet. Linda was ahead of all of them. And when I think of this song, I hear it in her voice on a magical night in a provincial town hall a lifetime ago. a great strong brother of mine and you know that I love you too You never talk dirty behind my back and I know there are those of you Please want you, please want you bear it in mind Love is a lesson to
Linda Lewis sings John Martin, May You Never. That record will always remind me of a very happy time in my life. Thank you, Linda. We're back to your questions in just 30 seconds. This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. Yep, it is 19 to 9, British summertime, a little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. Uh, As I said, we're going to get back to your questions. KD says, I've been pleasantly surprised by RFK Jr. I'm getting echoes of his father and uncle when I listen to him. Not Chris Matthews tingles down the leg echoes. But my reactions have been positive. What is your sense of the man? Is he Don Quixote charging at windmills? Or is there the Kennedy steel in there? His family, whatever you think of their politics, were fighters when it came to politics. Well, a lot of those family members uh, revile him now. Uh, he's, He's attacked by his siblings and his cousins, Uh, who have decided to disown him. And I think part of that is because he thinks seriously about these things. You know, he didn't want to get into the whole vaccine thing. And he started, I think it was just to do with mercury in water. It was like mercury in the fish. And he started with, uh, you know, the levels of mercury in the fish. And then somebody... Uh, actually, I think somebody dropped something off on his doorstep saying it's all very well worrying about the mercury in our fish. But what about the mercury in our school kids? And that's how he started getting interested and in get uh, in the medicalization of our children. As I said, you know, you can have a serious debate about that. I've just pointed out that Americans are super medicated and have, uh, by the standards of, say, Ireland or Australia or Japan, have very low life expectancy. And uh, those two things may or may not be connected, but I think the least you can say about it is uh, that dismissing him as an anti-vax crank doesn't really do it. This was way before COVID. You know, something is up Something is going on. We can argue about what that something is, but just to just deny, no, no, crazy man, crazy conspiracy theorist. That's not going to do it. Now, he understands that there's things you do as a private citizen that you can't do when you're running for president. He he wants, so, as I said, I thought he made a significant, for a Democrat, a profoundly significant... uh, observation on the Second Amendment and on gun ownership. I would say also that the thing that most people don't like about him, which is the environmental thing, on his first appearance on the Mark Stein Show, you can look this up, uh, it was uh, late 2021 on the Mark Stein Show, he spoke 
uh, about how it was just after COP26. Do you remember all that rubbish when the world flew in, or the Western world, because the Chinese and Russians thought this is complete rubbish and sat it out, but Biden was there and all the other guys were there. And uh, he said that he did not believe in a COP26. So he's a big environmentalist. But he doesn't believe in the COP26 approach to environmentalism. So, you know, as I said, the, the thing about it is the whatever, whoever came up with it, the Reagan line about how you shouldn't turn an 80% ally into a 20% enemy. You know, if we're talking percentages, I look at some of these useless Republican placeholders who've been in Congress for decades. I really wonder, you know, what percentage of an ally Lindsey Graham is to me. I just, you know, I don't know. These things, in a in a parliamentary system, these nuances would be reflected in a greater range of parties. Uh, but in the American system, that's apparently not possible. So we shall see. But I, as I said to him, toward the end of our conversation on Monday, um, somewhere like New Hampshire, which is a purplish state with an open primary, in other words, that, uh, you know, independents and uh, Republicans and whatever can cross over and vote in uh, an, uh, uh, another uh, in the Democrats' primary, RFK would not be without appeal, I don't think. And it's interesting that right now he's already polling, as we talked about, he's already polling at 20%. And just to round this out, the last question I asked him, which I put to him tactfully, because it's not nice. It's not just that his father and his uncle were killed, but it's, they, it's that they were killed in ways that have been examined every which way more than almost any other murders in the history of the nation. So that there are all kinds of, you know, websites you can go on where his uncle's assassination is examined from every angle, including, you know, exploding skulls and all the rest of it. And so I asked him tactfully, was he not worried about this? Because I think there's no doubt from what we've seen the last three years is that the people who control things are seriously determined to control the narrative and are not going to surrender it. And he said, you know, he there are worse. Th he said there are worse things than dying. And he looks at his children as I look at my children and they're going to be condemned to a crap world uh, if people do not step up in whatsoever way they can, whether for a Kennedy that is running for the Democrat presidential nomination on a most undemocrat-like ticket, like platform, or whether in my case that involves, you know, taking the British state censor to the English High Court in a way that the Nancy boys at GB News are not willing to do. So, you know, we shall see. But I think he's sincere because if you were, I mean, just being serious, his 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 uncle was killed. His father was killed. Those were the defining events of his childhood. Would you do that? Would you do this?
uh, unless you sincerely thought the country was in such a parlous state that someone needed to do it, and in your own party, no one's stepping up. You know, his whole business with Trump is that he... Uh, and he and Trump go back a long way. He goes back a long way with uh, interesting people who are not on his side politically, like Roger Ailes. Um, and uh, he his thing on Trump is basically that uh, Trump connected with people. He he thought uh, Trump connected with people, but that. Uh, that that he thinks he can connect with people and deliver for them. You know, we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. But it would certainly be better for the health of the republic if uh, a guy like RFK Jr. could get nominated in today's Democrat Party. Johnny Woodrow writes, Dear Mark, help me out. I feel like I might be turning into one of those chaps with newspaper cuttings all over the walls, strung together with pins and red string picking out patterns and connections. I've been reading Xi Jinping's third volume of speeches from 2017 to 2020. It is the globalist manual, Klaus Schwab's volume, Stakeholder Capitalism, Reads like the Reader's Digest version. Biden is a Chinese Communist Party asset, according to the Laptop from Hell banking records and Bannon's War Room crew. The great Nami Wolf calls the COVID virus a Chinese Communist Party bioweapon. Is the World Economic Forum just the end of level baddie? Are we living in an episode of 24 where mid-season the apparent baddie turns out to be a mid-level manager and the real baddie is revealed in the season finale. Is the Chinese Communist Party and its 100-year marathon to take over the world the real mind cancer we should be focused on, while issues like deliberate demographic manipulation through dangerous vaccines and no borders, mass migration, the growth of meta-national elites and organizations, uh, media censorship, election fraud, lockstep biosecurity and green agenda tyranny across the world are all symptoms of the Chinese Communist Party's penetration of the West. Are Trump and Kennedy the disruptors because they aren't bought and paid by the CCP? Mark, as I stand back from my pinboard, all my red string spells Marxism and the CCP. I know it can't be as simple as that. Hand me some more pins and string. <laughs> yeah, I like, I, I like what you said about uh, you know mid-season on a show like Twenty Four. Uh, my, uh, I grew weary of the Daniel Craig Bond films uh, because if uh, eventually. Uh, you know, because that became always like the what was the first one? Casino Royale, where that was about Smirsh. And then behind uh, Smirsh, it was Quantum in Quantum of Solace. And then behind Quantum in Quantum of Solace, it was Spectre. And then I, I forget who. Oh, behind Spectre, it's some issues from his childhood or, or whatever. I think it's quite reasonably reasonable to suggest that uh, the the death of the West uh, benefits all 
of America's enemies, whether you regard that as Russia or Islam or Chairman Xi and the Chinese Politburo. And the, the, the idea that, for example, you know, it's all very... So Klaus Schwab is, in that sense, a bit like a Blofeldian character presiding over his Spectre board meeting. In the end, there has to be something else behind the Bond villain. And so these guys are, you know, these guys are inherently risible. They could yet win. You know, the woke billionaires who jet into Davos could appear to win in the West. But the West that is run by the woke would then ultimately collapse and be and simply become a backward province of a Chinese hegemony. This is all happening. Um, the Chinese are advancing around the globe. The interesting thing, for example, you know, uh, in His Majesty's Dominions, the king is all buddy-buddy with Klaus Schwab and the Davos set. Meanwhile, it's uh, Chairman Xi who's uh, gobbling up Commonwealth islands from the Pacific to the Caribbean. That's something real. You know, if you were to speak to, say, David Starkey about this, he would think there are certain ironclad rules that for most of human history, uh, empires dominate. And those empires are powerful according to different principles. The British Empire dominated because it was a conventional empire yoked to modernity so that it was the most modern empire. Uh, and in that way, it you know, what, uh, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun and they have not, uh, whoever that was, Hilaire Belloc. And so it, it's, a, it's thinking like a conventional empire, but it's the most modern empire. Now we have China thinking as the conventional empire, and it's also in the most modern empire, in that it's not interested in getting caught uh, up in 20-year wars with goatherds with fertilizer the way the dying American republic is. Uh, it's taken over the world without firing a shot, largely. It saves firing a shot for its own citizens in China, but it's found other ways to take over the world. And if you look at what's going on at the World Economic Forum, if you look at the things that are important to them, if you look at things like net zero, for example, it weakens the West's position vis-a-vis -vis China. So therefore, it is reasonable to conclude that uh, net zero serves China's interest. But again, I come back to the central point that this is, it might be, there are two things. You know, Klaus Schwab thinks... We're all going to be uh, headed for transhumanism. And that won't be an option available to you. No, we'd much rather you just took your 12th booster shot and keeled over and died. Uh, and the transhuman stuff is reserved for Klaus and his Spectre board meeting types. And that's all well and good. And it may be fun for Klaus. And maybe if you were getting up there like Klaus is, you'd be thinking things like that, too. 
But, uh, but in Peking, Chairman Xi and the Politburo are thinking and advancing like a conventional empire. Meanwhile, America and His Majesty's dominions are thinking like wankers, talking about, you know, uh, the important thing is what pronouns you have. The important thing is whether you're fully on board with slicing the breasts of middle school girls. You know, that's that's such a level of stage, late stage decadence beyond anything in Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. You know, uh that that we we've got a battle going on between a decayed west that's been taken over by uh transanity and net zero insanity and all the way, and all the other forces around the world islam has no economic power all it has going for it is manpower russia has problems with manpower because a, a lot of its menfolk still keel over uh, face down in the vodka at 57 and a, a lot of its women folk still abort all their babies. But it thinks in more or less conventional ways, uh, as do some of the easternmost states in the Western world. Uh, but China uh, which has certain structural problems of its own caused by the one-child policy, is the dominant economic power. And right now, China's money is talking. That's why it can afford to buy up Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau and a lot of fellas in the British Conservative Party and so on and so forth. Uh, Simon Arnold says, Hi, Mark. What are your thoughts on the new World Economic Forum uh, chief executive that Elon Musk has appointed to Twitter. Your fantastic shows this week all point to an authoritarian nightmare heading everywhere. Yet this is uh, somebody, a, a lady who was at the... Uh, oh, we got another question. I'll read this one too. Patrick Gagan says, Hello, Mark. I see Elon Musk made an announcement yesterday that he would step down from running Twitter and appoint, wait for it, a nutjob loony liberal. Why do conservatives think these types of people like Musk somehow change their stripes? Rush Limbaugh always said that the guy was a grifter and he made all his money off of government subsidies. I hope Tucker Carlson is watching this closely because as you know Tucker's just said he's going to do his new show on Twitter yeah Th this woman is almost like a cliche of the uh, of elite liberal thinking social justice warrior world economic forum uh, was on the board at NBC I have no idea why Elon Musk would appoint her as Twitter's chief executive. I don't know. I don't really, I'm not looking for heroes, you know. To me, in some strange way, uh, a woman standing up at an American school board meeting and uh, denouncing the critical race theory is as important. I think it's very, very difficult. Um, Elon Musk is different because he come from other global elitists is because he comes from South Africa. So the issues that he engages with our friend Ava Velardinger broke on, for example, when she was talking about the demographic death spiral of the West, he understands that because uh, one of the problems for the old white 
Union of South Africa was that it got uh, it 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 got outbred by blacks, so that the demographic stability of the early years of the twentieth century, which meant that the whites could con- could rule the blacks. Uh, that was no longer possible by the time it all fell apart in the 1990s. They had a good run, but as I always say, the future belongs to those who show up, and South African whites ultimately did not show up. I'm sure he understands that, uh, being a child of South Africa, which is what makes him different from the other elitist liberals. You know, an elitist liberal from South Africa is still going to be more grounded than an elitist liberal from Connecticut uh, or, or or from Sweden. But I find this, you know, this appointment... Uh, this 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 appointment of a chief executive is almost like a parody. Perhaps he knows something about her that we don't know and is not discernible from her curriculum vitae. Uh, but I'm not. I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not someone who places my faith in people like that. In the end, you know, there's not enough of them. You can't wait for the guy to come riding in on a white charger. In the end, you know. Boring, uncharismatic, loser nobodies uh, have to step up to the plate, too, uh, simply because we live in a democratic era and the numbers in that crude sense do matter. Tom Lewis says, what do you think of Tucker's options? I know a little bit about this. You may have heard me and Megan Kelly talking about it a week ago, and Megan certainly knows about it because she's been here too, uh, which is that uh, when you are uh, let go by one of these media companies, I, and I should say that I know it at a much lower level than Tucker does, but, you know, I wound up being sued for 35 million bucks by a cockwombling Vegas billion. I can call him a cockwombling billionaire uh, because uh, under the uh, ruling of a magnificent jurist, and I think it was the second CRTV trial, <laughs> Carrie Katz and CRTV were found to be guilty of cockwombling behavior. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, uh, I always like that particular ruling. Um, anyway, uh, uh, but he sued me for $35 million. I mean, these are serious things. I think Tucker is up for something in that neighborhood, $35 million or so, I think 20 or $30 because he's still under contract. And I took the position, as did Megan, that basically um, – uh, the contract was no longer operative because of Fox News's prior material breach uh, in bre- breaching the uh, you know non-disclosure and disparagement clauses by leaking all this crap they've been leaking to media matters. Media matters can only have got hold of these texts and these videos where they keep the tape rolling uh, during the commercials. That's a very Fox News thing to do. Incidentally, there's one, if they're going to leak texts, there's a hilarious exchange between uh, my manager uh, and Tucker 
that you will love because it involves two of the leading figures in the American conservative movement, and you will get a big chuckle out of it. And the way they're leaking stuff, uh, I have no doubt that in the fullness of time, that uh, whatever it was, email exchange or text exchange, whatever the hell it was, will wind up getting linked, leaked. But the thing about this is, they breached his contract. He's got to. He he's got to. This is occasionally something I do, where you try and provoke someone into suing you. I just do that because I like. I find it better to be the defendant. So if you can do something to provoke an complete ass, such as Carrie Katz and his media network, into suing you, um, that will uh, that will work out better for you than if it's it's the other way around. And sometimes you just want to do it because. Their their uh, their interpretation of the residual contract is insane, uh, which is why we did what we did and why we prevailed in court. And as Megan and I touched on at the very end of the show, uh, uh, Tucker is in that same situation. The thing about this is, Tucker wants to be part of... I saw, actually, there's a great piece on American Thinker while we're going down this road. Uh, The American Thinker website, which is recommending a Tucker RFK ticket, which would certainly be different and shake up the landscape in the on the US political scene. I don't know whether it's possible to do because of the way it's so access to the ballot is so restricted in the United States unless you're, you know, cookie cutter Republican or cookie cutter Democrat. Um, but that would certainly be uh, an interesting development. But here's, here's the thing. He's just putting stuff up on Twitter uh, as I could or you could. Uh, he's not done a deal with Twitter and he's not getting any money from that. And that's good that he's not doing a deal with Twitter, because as we saw from this announcement of the new chief executive, you want to be uh, you, you want to be pretty careful before you put all your eggs in Elon Musk's uh, basket. Uh, let's just do a couple more quickly. I'm running over here. Labmouse says, will you now be a guest on Tucker's new show? <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm happy to do that. You know, I had Tucker's taken some of my favorite people with him from Fox News. Um, and uh, I can certainly the, the 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 such as my relationship with Fox was, you know, uh, it had degenerated by whatever. I can't remember what it was now, two years ago. And I would love to be back with Tucker in a non-Fox context, which we will certainly, which we, I think we, we've had a little bit of an exchange on that front, and I think uh, eventually we'll, we'll, um, you will get to see that. Chris Davis says, Mark, as a relative newbie to the Mark Stein Club, I'm kicking myself for not finding you before your departure from GB News. The back catalogue of content alone is worth the admission fee and the shows are immeasurably better online than they were on Ofcom Toadyland television. You know, the technical quality has so improved since we cut um, GB News Master Control Room out of the deal that you have no idea how bad the audio was. I Sometimes when we'd be doing interviews, I could hardly hear what 
the other person was saying. I made a joke that um, it was when I went to Ukraine, it was actually easier doing the show from a war zone than doing it via a GB News master control room. They were they were and are some of the most abysmal amateurs uh, in, uh, certainly in the context of British television, the, uh, the, 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 the Ofcom toady who runs the place, I've forgotten his name, what's his, what, Angelus Flopadopoulos? Uh, yeah, Angelus Flopadopoulos, he thinks it's funny that it's all so cheap and crap. Um, well, I never did the show from his studio. I always did it from another studio run by a guy I've known, you know, years before uh, GB News came along, and which I regard as far more professional. Professional. That's the scene, the Mark Stein show set that you've seen when we do the show from London. They gave that, of course, to the Lord President of the Privy Council when Flopadopoulos hired him to replace me. <laughs> and they're so broke now uh, that they've had to cancel that thing. So Nigel and uh, the uh, Lord President of his, the Privy Council guy, what's he called, Reece, Jacob Rees-Mogadon? Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogadon and Nigel both do the show from that awful Paddington uh, studio. Uh, Chris Davis says, My wishes to you and all involved in keeping the show on the road, and here's to many more years of improved health cruises and content to stimulate the little grey cells before we all go over that cliff. Keep well, Mark. I'm glad you enjoyed the back catalogue. If you're one of our newer members on this, our sixth birthday, do prowl around. We've got an awful lot of content there. And in fact, if you enjoy our back ca back uh, catalogue, uh, we'll be airing a little of it this uh, coming weekend. A little bit of music to close. If you watch my show or uh, did I say that letter was from Chris Davis? Uh, I certainly hope I did. I don't I don't think I read the sign off there. Um, as I said, a little bit of music to close. If you watch my show or you listen to it, you will know Mike Batt, the presiding genius behind the Wombles. I mention that mainly because uh, Laura Rosen Cohen in Toronto and Kate Smythe in Sydney were Wombles fans from the opposite ends of the earth. Um, so you've seen Mike Dad on the Mark Stein Show. You've heard him on our Serenade Radio Song of the Week. In fact, he's going to be here with us over the weekend, courtesy of the aforementioned Stein Archives. Anyway, Mike and I were swapping a few thoughts about Linda Lewis uh, just a few days ago because he managed Linda for a few years in the 1970s. On the telly this week, I played her lovely foray into Gilbert and Sullivan, the Mikado, but she also sang Georges Bizet from his masterpiece, Carmen. How does that happen? Well, Mike Batt has a thing he does when he's making an album of new material with singers. OK, great, 10 new songs. But how about doing uh, a couple of older items just to vary the flavour of the set? So the singer goes round to Mike's pad and he has a zillion songbooks and anthologies and uh, fake books, what they call uh, fake books, collections of songs with top line and chords. And they rummage uh, through all the sheet music, kick it about, and see if the singer connects with anything. Well, Linda 
connected with this. I said to Mike how much I loved this record, and he told me, I think it was yesterday, that earlier this week, after Linda's death, he'd listened to it for the first time in years and thought she sang it so well, but he had no idea why he had the drums play such a wacky drum pattern. I kind of like the drums on this, and Linda's vocal is magnificent. Love's a baby that grows up wild, and he don't do what you want him to. Love ain't nobody's angel child, and he won't pay any mind to you. One man gives me his diamond stud, and I won't give him up.
late Linda Lewis with orchestra arranged and conducted by Mike Batt and the Habanera from Carmen, music by Georges Bizet with English words by Oscar Hammerstein II, written for his American adaptation of the opera as Carmen Jones. And with all due respect to Mike, I'm okay with the drums on that. Very nice arrangement by Batty and a terrific vocal. Rest in peace, lovely Linda. You brightened a lot of lives and certainly mine. Stick with Stein Online this weekend. Rick McGuinness on the movie beat. Tal Backman on the Backman beat. The Mark Stein Show returns on Monday. L'amour est un oiseau rebelle. Stay safe, stay free, stay well. of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.